Welcome to Zondo Commission Unpacked, a Corruption Watch podcast. My name is Mwepeng Valencia Talani. This podcast is brought to you by Corruption Watch and produced by Volume. I've finished witnessing the proceedings of the Zondo Commission today. It's been another day of interesting revelations. For this podcast series, we're going to be having some deep dive conversations with some of the people who are close to the Commission as well as experts in the anti-corruption space in South Africa. I'm going home now to prepare for another day of the commission tomorrow. Keep listening. You're listening to Zonda Commission Unpacked, a Corruption Watch podcast. And for this episode, we're going to continue our discussion with David Lewis, the Executive Director of Corruption Watch. Welcome back, David. Thank you. Thank you, Valencia. Now we're going to talk about two topics today. Uh, the first being um, evidence that was led about two weeks ago in, on the intelligence sector of the commission, of the country rather, as well as um, evidence led on parliamentary oversight of which you were a part at some point, David. I'd like to start with the intelligence sector evidence, please. About two weeks ago, the commission started hearing evidence about the country's intelligence function. Um, to the extent that it could, it stuck to only information that, that is safe and wouldn't necessarily put the country's security in jeopardy. But nevertheless, the, the information that was or the revelations that were made were nevertheless quite extraordinary in the sense that they gave us insight into basically how the alleged capture of the SSA, the State Security Agency, happened from, um, over 10 years ago. Apparently, the, the mission started in 2008 before the former president, Jacob Zuma, was in office. We were told that Mr. Romo recruited a number of operatives, brought them in from KZN, to create a parallel unit, um, a, a unit uh, or a structure that was parallel to what was already in existence within the SSA. And um, the sole purpose of it was to conduct missions that were apparently going to benefit only the president uh, at the time, Mr. Zuma. The revelations that came out were good for a commission investigating state capture because they tell us how the, the capture of the SSA may have happened back then. But are they good for the country, David? Do we need the world to know what went wrong with our intelligence service? And do we need to, to have heard the detail that we have heard? I can't see that they're bad for the country. I mean, as you pointed out in your opening remarks, the commission took care to ensure that particular members of the intelligence services or, or particular projects of the intelligence services were not compromised by the revelations made at the commission. And I you know, can't see in that uh, evidence that anything, anybody or anything of substance has been put into, into jeopardy. 
I mean, some of the goings on in the intelligence agencies have been have been known, including crime intelligence. And I'm, I'm not sure whether that was part of the investigation I, that Sidney Mofamide did. I don't think it was, but did be included in these remarks, nevertheless, that, you know, the goings on in, in the intelligence agencies have been known about for some time, I think, partly as a result of what people learned from the Mufamadi Commission as well, although, you know, as I say, it was, it was not conducted in the same open, transparent manner for obvious reasons that the Zondo Commission has been conducted. But I mean, secondly, you know, and more substantively, you know, the, the biggest learning derived from that, from that commission and from these revelations about the intelligence agencies is that we don't have intelligence agencies, really. They completely handed themselves over as a kind of private intelligence agency of the president. And as you say, even before he became president, which is instructive in itself, because there's little doubt that the intelligence agencies were deployed from 2008 to secure the presidency for Jacob Zuma, you know, whether that was through providing money for, for bribes, for votes, you know, whether it was even more sinister than that, uh, who knows. But, you know, quite clearly what was revealed there, as I said, and the most damaging thing that was revealed there is that we don't have functioning intelligence agencies. We have people who engaged in theft of monies, houses, cars that were used and, and handed over for the private use of, of individuals who, as you say, were not even formally vetted and not in not through the vetting procedures i'm sure they were vetted for their support for what it is that they were going to be doing once they got there i think south africans have to know that you know south africans don't have to know the legitimate secret doings of the intelligence agencies but they do have to know that the intelligence function of the state was grossly and catastrophically undermined during the state capture era. In fact, you know, we've always said that the first institutions to be captured were the law enforcement agencies, by which we meant the, essentially the police and the prosecuting authority. But I'm not sure if that's right anymore. I mean, I think the first agencies to be captured were the intelligence agencies. And when you recall that Zuma was for a long time the head of ANC intelligence. I don't doubt the veracity of the submissions that were made to both the Mufamadi Commission and by Witness K or other witnesses to the commission. You know, I, I don't doubt that Zuma in the years leading up to the unbanning of the ANC had contact, probably legitimate contact with then South African intelligence and knows where all the bodies are buried and so has a lot of secrets that he can reveal, which he's always threatening to do. And so he was in a very powerful position to turn the intelligence agencies to his own uh, personal purposes and that of his faction and that of his cronies. My analysis hearing all this evidence was that the method that was used of 
sending in the, these troops, if I may call them that, they could, you know, spy on his behalf or on behalf of members of the executive leadership of the ANC that, uh, of course, followed him into the leadership position that he, he would now hold in government. It doesn't explain why anyone would need 20 million rands to do something like that. But before you even have the president in office, you're recruiting people that you're going to allegedly train to protect him, a job that in itself should have been uh, done by the SAPS because it has its VIP unit. What do you think of that? Well, you know, I think deploy several of those people, I think quite a few of those people, to the VIP security service, the service that provides security for ministers and high public officials, is very smart because what better way is there of spying on your ministers and wanting to know where they've been and what they are doing than to place a bodyguard loyal to yourself as their bodyguard. And I think that this is what they did. You know, I, th I seem to remember that at some stage, the entire security cluster of ministers came from KZN. And all these people came from KZN. And plus he had, you know, networks of, in the intelligence structures of the ANC. And so, you know, the rest is, is history. Speaking of which, um... I mean, there, there's no divorcing the political head of state from the work of the intelligence service. There's no, you know, pulling the two apart. But um, it would seem, possibly even before Zuma came into office, there, there, there would have been some political meddling in the intelligence service. From Zondo's perspective and from, from the after a process such as an intervention, such as the State Capture Commission, how do we address the issue of political meddling? In other words, using the um, political power to influence how the intelligence services run. Um, how do we ensure that that doesn't happen again? For example, I think the Inspector General of Intelligence is one of those appointees that are made solely by the president. You can change the mechanism of appointment of the heads of the intelligence agencies to ensure that they're not the president's cronies that are appointed. And I think that will go a long way. If you have a president who is, you know, fundamentally dishonest and self-serving, you're going to really struggle to keep those institutions or any institutions, any important institutions of the state on the straight and narrow. How would you say one, or the country rather, can achieve a balance between what you find to be a competent intelligence function on the one hand, where secrecy and covertness is a must for it to work, but still hold intact the principle of transparency that comes with a democratic state? Surely there must be some accountability, for example, at least over their spending, you know, or over their recruitment. You know, when I was uh, um, on the competition tribunal, I had to be vetted by the security agencies. 
I mean, it probably didn't help that they vetted me after I'd been in office for about two years already, but that's another story. But um, how can a whole group of people, literally from a single province, get into the intelligence agencies without being vetted? Surely there must be, there must be some check on that that can legitimately be, you know, semi-open. You don't reveal who they are, but somebody outside of the intelligence agencies has to be told that these people were vetted and here's evidence of them being vetted. Well, the world has become a more transparent place. And that's partly because, uh, because greater transparency is demanded. And it's for the intelligence agencies and for those who appoint their heads to be realistic about what can be made transparent and what can't be made transparent. And the default position in a constitutional democracy like our own is that transparency should prevail with realism, where not only the intelligence agencies are concerned, but even where some affairs of government are concerned, where, you know, foreign negotiations are concerned, where defense force deployment is concerned. There are quite a few things that the state can reasonably claim should not be transparent. But the intelligence agencies are not exempt from that kind of test, from that kind of consideration. And I think that they have been, you know, literally, uh, you know, what was, I think, revealed in the Muhammadi Commission and in the subsequent submissions to the Zondor Commission is that they were totally a law unto themselves. Speaking of um, transparency, I'd like for us to, to move away from the intelligence function evidence now and onto an area of evidence that you participated in. That's the parliamentary oversight evidence that continues to be heard, of course. Evidence heard so far suggests that parliament did nothing about um, allegations of state capture when they first surfaced in 2016. Do you think if we were going to say uh, they didn't have to step in and do anything about it because, well, in any case, the report from Tulima Donzela would be coming to them, for them to review and to make, uh, to take action on. So theirs was to fold their arms and wait until Tulimatonsela releases this report. Does that rationale make sense to you from a civil society point of view? Do you think it holds water? Frankly, I don't think it does. You know, I've, I've read these these remarks of Cedric Frolics that, you know, all of a sudden this overweening respect for the public protector was not something that was, that was often exhibited by parliament in the past and particularly the ANC members of parliament. You know, there are different committees of parliament, you know, whichever public enterprises committee, I think had an absolute duty to investigate the state-owned enterprises that fell under its uh, remit when what was known about them was becoming known. I mean, ESCOM was in dire straits before Parliament lifted a finger to investigate ESCOM. The same applied to South African Airways. The same applied to um, Danel. So, you know, they, they didn't need to investigate it even under the rubric of state capture. 
They just had to say, ESCOM is in serious trouble here. Uh, let Parliament, you know, step in and find out what ESCOM's view of the story is, you know? I mean, the truth of the matter is, for much of the period of state capture, um, Parliament was missing in action. You know, if anything, it was a sort of handmaiden of, of the executive. It was not a, a body that exercised oversight of the executive. What's interesting for me, the, the thing, the two years that stand out for me are 2016, of course, which is where the original, um, the initial allegations of state capture started surfacing, at least in terms of, in the context of the state of capture investigation by the public protector. Now, the other year is the very next year, 2017, where whichever way you look at it, because the ANC was heading to an elective conference and there was a possibility, maybe not from the Zuma camp that they, they could be overthrown, but there was a possibility, a slight possibility that there might just be a change in you know, um, leadership within the ANC and therefore a change in, in how we do things in parliament and possibly even changes to the people, as you, you mentioned, the people who make it onto or who are bumped off the list of MPs, had it not been for parliament not doing its work in that time, we probably wouldn't be sitting now with a 1 billion rand commission of inquiry. Would you not agree to that? And those, and those years, I agree with you, they were watershed years, but you know, parliament has never enjoyed a great deal of respect from the executive of the democratic state. I mean, you know, recall what went on in the arms deal. You know, that was the first time when, when Scoper stood up to the executive and how the uh, executive, you know, from the president onto several other of his cabinet ministers rode absolutely roughshod over Scoper you know, they, they got rid of, at the time, Gavin Woods, they got rid of uh, um, Andrew Feinstein. These were the people who were doing their jobs. The one was a, a, an IFP MP who was chair of Scopa, the other was an ANC MP, and were exposing, you know, what the Zuma, Zondo Commission is exposing today. And, and so there has never been a, a great degree of respect for Parliament. And I think you know, this might be quite a, a crude analysis, but I think that's one of the main reasons for that is that the executive know that at the end of the day, parliament is, every single parliamentarian depends for his or her seat on a decision of the party executive who are by and large the executives of the state as well. And so, you know, then they know that uh, the odds of Parliament holding them to account in a really robust, aggressive manner is very unlikely as long as that, uh, as long as that prevails. Now, to, to finish um, off on our discussion, David, how is your contribution, what, what do you think the contribution of 
not only Corruption Watch, but all the other civil society organizations? What's the end goal there and what, how should it help inform how the Zondo Commission decides or recommends as far as Parliament is concerned? I don't think on the basis of the evidence the Commission has taken that they are going to be able to make very, very far-reaching recommendations on how Parliament should be constituted how it should be made up, what the role of the speaker is, you know, should this be a more independent role than has been, certainly was exhibited during the Baleka Mbete period and seems, it seems to be a much more independent function under the current uh, speaker. So I, I don't imagine that those far-reaching recommendations will be made. They really do require a kind of commission all of its own. And, and I think they require one quite urgently, actually, to really look into our electoral system, into our functioning of parliament, into the resourcing of parliament. I mean, I have some sympathy when parliament says it's under-resourced. I know it gets a billion rand and only 20 million rand seems to go to the committees. I'm, I'd be interested to know what the other 980 million rand was spent on. But, um, uh, you know, you sometimes see the executive of a company like ESCOM making a presentation to Parliament or a company like SAA. And these executives know a hell of a lot more about the economics of the airline industry and the electricity generation and distribution industry than the parliamentarians do. And so you, you see a real kind of inequality of arms, as they call it, you know, in court, at least the judges, they may not know as much lot more than the parliamentarians know but they have two contending sides arguing and so they do need research resources and they could make recommendations over how parliament conducts itself when making critical appointments it needs some legislation you, you know scopa has functioned reasonably well i think because there was a non-anc chair. There was a non-majority party chair. And I don't think that that should necessarily extend over all, all parliamentary committees. I think it's a very good idea that it be retained for, for SCOPA. But if they want to discuss how parliamentarians are elected or appointed or whatever the correct word is to use under these circumstances, then I think, you know, there were at the time uh, some good reasons for using the proportional representation system. And one of those reasons was that it allowed more space for small parties. But I'm not sure that we can afford that anymore. I'm not sure that we can afford to have elected officials who are not accountable to the electorate, but who are accountable to the headquarters of their various parties, you know. On that note, um, I will reserve my comment for now, but I will, I will say that um, I think because of the timing of the submission by Corruption Watch and all the other civil society, for me, it came across as crammed into, you know, for convenience more than anything else. And it really, it, it's an area of evidence that needs to be threshed out further, perhaps have its own platform for, for that to happen. In the case of our submission, as I say, I felt that I had enough time to get across what we wanted and Judge Zondo seemed to be engaged with what we were saying. I thought some of Hugh Corder's suggestions about this 
Accountability Standards Act and things like that seemed really, really interesting. And those might be the kind of things that need a, you know, need a much fuller discussion. But you know, you know, a lot of the difficulties that we've encountered in our direct experience of the appointment of people to key positions in the chapter nine institutions and the law enforcement institutions, the difficulties are as a result of parliamentarians taking orders from the executive. You know, certainly that was the case with the IPED appointment. And certainly I think in the case of the, of the public protector appointment, they didn't even have to take orders from the, the executive, but they knew that they would nominate somebody who came from their own ranks, you know, and they would vote for somebody who came from their own ranks, even if the opposition candidate was manifestly better qualified you know, or not even, they weren't the opposition candidate, it was a candidate nominated by the opposition. And that goes down to the fact, I think, that it's not the parliamentarians often who are taking their own decisions. And I can't remember the name of the parliamentarian who testified um, before the commission and was then supported by Jesse Duarte, who said, of course, I take my orders from the Thule House. And it's not an uncomplicated question. You know, the parliamentarians are elected as members of a party, even if they were directly elected and they were elected as members of the party. The party has a manifesto. They're expected to respect the manifesto of their own party and, you know, go to bat for the implementation of that manifesto. But when your executive are behaving dishonestly, when your executive are trashing the policy of the party, not to mention the constitution of the Republic, then you have no call to protect them. In fact, you have precisely the call to hold them to account. And so that dual role has to be balanced and it has to be represented in the way in which people are held to account by the public. And at the moment, they're not. The best place to end the, the conversation, I would say. <laughs> Thank you so much, David, uh, for joining us. Uh, it's been talking to you. It is a real pleasure. I've really learned a lot from our conversation. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Zondo Commission Unpacked, a Corruption Watch podcast produced by Volume. I've been your host, Mwepeng Valencia Talani. Join us next time for another episode. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Volume.